The reading tonight is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which is on page 1146. That's 1146. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're starting at verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Let's ask for God's help as we take a closer look at this passage. Paul said uh, in chapter 2, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And so we pray, our Heavenly Father, as we come to hear these words of the Apostle Paul in this letter of 1 Corinthians, that we would receive them not as words from people like Paul, but as words from you by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're heading into the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is speaking uh, again about the divisions that he finds in the church. Uh, You'll remember a few weeks ago, uh, we were looking at the beginning of the book where Paul receives a report from Chloe's people that there are factions in the church. And uh, Paul uh, spends time showing how those factions undermine what they believe about the gospel. And you might be forgiven as we head into chapter 4 for thinking, come on, Paul, haven't we heard enough? I mean, sure, 
factions in the church. No one likes them. They're not great for morale. But really, do we need this much on it? And of course, you know, we want to believe the right gospel. We want to make sure we have the right truth at the heart of church. But do we really need four chapters on it? Do we really need to hear this again so much, uh, again tonight? Well, today's passage comes to show us uh, why it does matter to Paul, and it should matter to us. See, today's passage is all about why Paul cares so much about the church being healthy. And as we look at this, I hope it's going to show us why we should be passionate about this as well. Uh, Whether we are a member of the church and uh, we want to... as play our part in building that healthy church, or whether we're here tonight looking into things and thinking about whether the church is something we want to be part of. Uh, Just to warn us, we're going to see the headline for what what Paul says here in the first point. We're going to see why Paul cares about this so much, and then we're going to spell out three implications of that. And just to warn you, we get to the three implications a bit later on. So if you're worried that I haven't even got to the first point after about 20 minutes, don't worry. Uh, that's where we're going. So why, starting with this big headline, why is it that these divisions are so disastrous? Why spend four chapters speaking uh, about the gospel? Well, the big reason comes in verse 16. Look what Paul says there. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you. See, for three chapters, Paul has said what the church is not. Uh, He says the church is not wise in the world's eyes or the church is not powerful as the world sees power. But now he turns to show us what the church is. And he begins by saying, it is God's temple. Now, this would have been very striking for the Corinthians because Corinth, uh, the city they're in, is famous for its temple. There was a a huge megastructure. Here's a picture of what's left of it. Here's seven pillars. Uh, This, in its um, original form, was 38 pillars, and it was a temple to the god Apollo. You could just imagine, can't you? Imagine this in the center of Basingstoke. Uh, what it would do to a town or a city like Corinth. People would come in from hundreds of miles by land and sea just to get a sense of meeting with this God, Apollo. But Paul says, no, look, God doesn't dwell up the road in that temple. He dwells in you. Because God's Spirit is in you, that is where God is found. This little seemingly unimpressive group of ordinary people are God's temple. Thanks, Sam. But it's not just the temple in Corinth Paul brings up uh, here, but also you'll be aware that the temple is a huge theme running through the Old Testament. See, the temple was always the goal of the people of Israel. Uh, You'll remember that Solomon built this huge temple and it was filled with a cloud, a thick cloud, to symbolize that actually God's presence was there in the temple. But now, Paul says, the temple is you. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, his redemption, his sanctifying of you, 
because He has given you His Spirit, you are that temple. You're the big climax of that whole goal of the Old Testament, for God to dwell with His people. See, why four chapters, Paul? Well, why not more? Because you can see, can't you, how important this is to Paul and should be to us. You can see why the disasters are, uh, the divisions rather, are such a disaster for the church. Because if they are God's temple, if they are the place where God makes His name known, well, it's a scandal to have factions. And it's a scandal for the church to get the gospel wrong and to misrepresent God. See, the church for Paul is, and uh, for us, is God's temple. And so the divisions aren't a nice to have. They're not a kind of um, a, a, a strategy for, for kind of growth. They're not a, a kind of uh, a good thing to, for, for getting unity. They are, uh, Paul's so passionate about them because this is where God dwells. But there is a sobering flip side to God's people being God's temple. Because notice what he says in verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. See, in the ancient world, to destroy a temple was to basically pick a fight with a god. Um, You may remember Sennacherib, uh, as he attacks the people of Israel, he goes down through all the nations above them, and destroys their temples. And he says that he's defeated all their gods, not because he's kind of ascended into heaven and had an arm wrestle or anything like that, but because he's destroyed their temples. And Paul applies that same logic here. If you destroy uh, God's temple, well, you too will be destroyed, except it's not the bricks and mortar that Paul's worried about, but the people that make up that temple. Why are those divisions that Paul's spoken about are so toxic? Why it matters we get the gospel right? Because to destroy the church, well, is to destroy what is God's. It's worth saying that this is one of the reasons we care so much about what type of church we are here at St. Mary's. We think carefully, hopefully, and prayerfully about what sort of culture we create, not because we think that's the best strategy for growth or, you know, that's the best way to um, kind of manage a church. It might be, but they're not primarily the reasons. See, the reason is, is because we believe fundamentally God has chosen ordinary people like us, given us His Spirit, and chose to dwell with us. And it's also why we care so much about the wider church. Maybe you sort of roll your eyes when we talk about Church of England things or kind of wider church things, maybe forgiven for that. But we, we, we choose to, to be involved in those things because we care about the whole church, not just the church locally, but the church nationally and globally. And so we try to do our part to pray for the church, to, to encourage the church wide, uh, beyond us to honor at what uh, it has received in the gospel, because we believe that actually we are together the temple of God. See, why does it matter? Paul says, you are the temple of God, where God dwells. And from that point, he sets out three 
kind of um, implications. This is like his concluding part of, uh, of these three uh, chapters. And, and here he kind of concludes things by saying what they're meant to do in response to what he's already said. He says, first of all, no more looking wise, no more boasting, and finally, no more judging. See, look at what Paul says in verse 18 in response to this. He says, do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. See, to be part of God's temple, he says, you need to be a fool. Now, this doesn't mean we suddenly kind of try and lower our IQ, kind of extract our brains this evening uh, to try and be stupid. He's not saying that. He's not saying give up your studies. Uh, You know, I don't want to encourage anyone not to study. You know, parents, please don't have a go at me later. Please study. Please do your exams and that sort of thing. He's not saying we have to suddenly be stupid, but he is saying we need to embrace the foolishness of the gospel. See, over the past few weeks, we've seen, haven't we, that God has purposely chosen to work through what is seemingly weak and foolish in our world. How was it that God redeemed the world? Was it through mighty acts of power, a huge army? No, it was through His Son who came in a stable, who died on a Roman execution device, the most shameful death, that was how God chose to redeem the world. Trouble is, for the Corinthian church, that didn't just seem very sophisticated. Uh, We've seen, haven't we, that the Corinthian church was all about wisdom, you know, who you were listening to on the circuit, who was the impressive speaker, who was the person that sounded the most impressive. And to come in with this gospel that just seems so weak and foolish, well, actually, it was a bit embarrassing for the people of Corinth. That's why Paul says earlier on that he came in weakness and trembling with this message of a crucified Messiah. But Paul says, look, if you want to be God's temple, you've got to embrace the gospel in all its weakness. You can't kind of believe a gospel that seems weak to the world and also seem impressive at the same time. You need to become a fool. I remember this battle for me as a young Christian. I basically grew up thinking that Christians were pretty stupid. Now, please don't be offended. I changed my mind uh, a bit later on. But uh, that was basically it. I assume they believe stupid things that we've all kind of grown up and moved on from. But then I went to university, and I remember almost the first night sitting in the student bar, and I met a Christian, and I thought, you must be lost. What are you doing here? And uh, a bit later on, someone invited me to church, and someone was speaking at church. He was a university professor. And as I met people in the church, there were people who were studying my course and people with PhDs, people who were clever. And I realized over time that actually there were a number of clever people who were Christian, And as I looked at the gospel, I realized, actually, there are real good rational reasons it's true. It's historically credible. There's evidence for it. And slowly, over time, I was convinced of that evidence and became a Christian myself. And in my arrogance, I thought to myself, well, 
I've got the answer now. I know it's true, and I know it's intellectually credible, so I'm going to go and tell people about it. But what happened? Well, people started thinking I was stupid. People started taking the mick out of me that I still believed in this kind of superstitious idea about God. And everything in me wanted to say at that point, look, there are clever Christians. I know some of them. Come and look at them. They've got letters after their name and things like that. But at the end of the day, no matter how much I do that, the gospel will seem foolish. Because God has set things up that fund- so it fundamentally opposes our pride. The only way to know the Lord Jesus is through the humility to admit that we can't work him out. We can't, in our wisdom and intelligence, understand God and what he's done. So to be God's temple, to be a healthy church, to be the church God designs, uh, desires, is to admit that humility, to come to the cross, to say, actually, I can do nothing. I can know nothing uh, without you. To become, as Paul puts it, a fool. I wonder if that's something you've embraced yourself. It's very easy, isn't it? I struggle with it myself for a number of years, still do in some ways. Have you embraced the foolishness of the gospel? Maybe you are trying to sort of tread two worlds and you want to believe the gospel, but then you're a bit embarrassed about it at work or amongst friends. Well, Paul says you can't have it both ways. It would always seem foolish. It will always seem powerless, uh, but it is wonderful. There's a second way, though, that Paul wants them to respond. Um, no more uh, to, to become a fool. But, but secondly, he goes on to say, no more boasting. Uh, we've seen in this letter, haven't we, that there's a, a, a celebrity culture in the Corinthian church. Uh, some people, they follow Paul, perhaps because he's an early church planter. Uh, but others think, actually, Paul's a bit naff. He's not very exciting to listen to. But Apollos, on the other hand, he's brilliant. He's a great orator. And so they're following him, or other people, Peter, and so on and so forth. And so he says in verse 21, no more boasting about men. Give up the factions. Give up the celebrity culture. Give up going to the conferences just because so-and-so is speaking. It is dividing the church. It is dividing God's temple. But interestingly, the argument here is not quite the one I think I would expect, I might expect Paul to say, look, give up, follow me, because I'm nothing, or Apollos is a bit rubbish anyway. He, he doesn't say that. Notice what he does say in verse 22, or verse 21 rather, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, as Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. See, the Corinthian church seems to have a sort of scarcity mentality. And he, instead of saying, don't worry about us, he says, look, actually, you've got so much more in the gospel. Imagine for a second that um, a group of children were given full access to the contents of Hamley's toy store. Just imagine that for a second. And uh, the doors open and the children, they run in and they just go mad, they go all over the floors, they play with every toy. But one boy thinks to himself, 
I'm going to get something for myself. And he walks straight over to the Lego store, uh, the Lego bit, and grabs a little Lego man. And he thinks to himself, that's pretty cool, I'm going to have that. And then he goes around the store, going to the other children, look at my Lego man. You can take his head off, you can take his legs off, it's really fun. But it's mine, and I've got it. And he goes up to another child, look at my Lego man, it's mine. You can't have it. I, I, the other children are going to be thinking, yes, but we've got a whole store here. And there's something similar going on here with Paul. It's not that the Corinthian church, uh, the Corinthian church just hasn't realized that they've got everything already in the gospel. They don't have to choose between Paul and Apollos. They, they have both. In fact, they have everything else besides. See, why is it you and me boast? Why is it we find ourselves showing off about how much we earn or where we work or what qualifications we got or where we've holidayed or who we know? It's because, isn't it, that we hope that the person we talk to thinks that we matter because of those things. But the gospel reverses all that, doesn't it? The, the gospel says to you, you haven't got those things. You're not impressive because of those things. But actually, you are precious, you are chosen, you are loved, because Jesus has died for you. And so Paul says, to be God's temple is not to boast like we haven't got everything but to recognize what we have in Christ. I hope none of us feels the pressure here at church to want to make a name for ourselves. I realize church is an easy place to feel that pressure. Um, the church is a place where people's gifts are on display and some gifts are more on display than others. And we want to encourage people, don't we, to, to, to use their gifts to the best uh, possible way. But it'd be very easy to turn that into us making a name for ourselves, us trying to prove ourselves. But actually, the gospel reminds us that we have everything already because Christ has achieved everything in his death. And finally, Paul says, thirdly, no more judging. See, there's an unpleasant underside to all this. It's not that just people have got their favorites, but they've got their enemies as well. And Paul seems to have not just been uh, reject, pushed to one side, but he seems to be actively rejected. In chapter 4, he talks about being judged by them in their court. And so Paul says, no more judging. But why does he say no more judging? Well, that's, um, as we look at this passage, we see that it's not quite as we might expect. So you might expect Paul at this point to say, who do you think you are judging me? I'm an apostle. Who do you think you are calling into question my authority? But, but he doesn't. Rather, he calls into question their ability to judge. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. See, Paul says, look, I don't even judge myself. 
Um, not because Paul thinks he's the business and he hasn't got anything to judge himself for, but because he knows he's such a bad judge of his own character. I mean, think to the last time you did something wrong. Uh, I don't know about you, but I give myself a pretty easy time when it comes to judging me. I give everyone else a hard time. I give myself a bit of a let off. And Paul knows that. He knows our own consciences are such poor judges of who we really are. See, the gospel isn't about that. The gospel is recognizing that God judges us in our hearts, in our deepest, most thoughts, and yet, despite that, loves us through his Son. But he goes further because he doesn't just say, don't judge, but he points out that their judgments aren't even accurate uh, as well. Notice what he says at the end of verse 5. He says, uh, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Now, just stop there and just think to yourself, how do you expect that verse to end? He will expose what's hidden in darkness. He will expose the motives of men's hearts. And then he will come and condemn them. And then he will judge them for eternity. Then he will dismiss them from his presence. Now, what does he say? At that time, each will receive his praise from God. See, because of the gospel, God mercifully doesn't judge by our standards. He sees the heart, he sees our motives, he sees all the darkness in a way that you and me can't. But he chooses to love us, to forgive us, so that you and me might receive praise or reward or, or comfort from God. See, it's the Corinthian church are being far stricter in their judgments than the gospel is. And so Paul says, don't judge. Not only do you see things falsely, but you're not as generous as our God. See, why does this all matter? Why the four chapters? Why another 25 minutes on this this evening? Well, because we are God's temple. And because of that, there can be no more boasts of wisdom, no more boasting in our favorites, and no more judging. And we're going to have a look at some of the questions that have come in off the back of this passage. Um, a few getting into the, the text questions, Rob. So firstly, uh, servants of Christ comes up in chapter 4, verse 1, and in other places of, in the Bible. Uh, what does that mean? What's Paul getting at there? Um, it means that he serves another. That might seem pretty obvious, but uh, the word there is um, often translated slave, which can unhelpfully bring up connotations of some of the uh, unfortunate um, and barbaric slave trade of a few hundred years ago. But in the Roman world, slavery was a, was a kind of more, an everyday thing. And so Paul uses that to say, actually, I'm a slave of, of Christ. Uh, I'm a servant of Christ. Um, you know, uh, and then the other word he uses is a word uh, for steward or kind of someone who runs the household slaves. And and his point for all this is actually he, uh, he answers to someone greater than him. And his job, like a sort of servant of the house, is just to do what the master's instructions are 
rather than make a name for himself or anything like that. Great. So kind of belongs to Christ and yes. therefore Christ calls him to this work. Yeah. And so his description is, I'm a servant of Christ. Absolutely. As I look to do what he calls me to do. Yeah. Great. Um, and then let's pack, uh, unpack some of this language of judging and what that looks like. Yeah. Um, firstly, from a text point of view, someone's asked, how does the judging of chapter 4, verse 1 to 5, link to some of the judging that we saw in last week's passage at the end, uh, chapter 3, verse 12 to 15? So kind of different types of judging. Going yeah, so as you helpfully points out to me, last week um, talks about God's judgment, and uh, this week he's addressing the Corinthians uh, judging of one another. So two different people trying to judge. Uh, yes. Great. And could you unpack then, um, so we've got different types of judgment from God's judgment and our judgment of other people, yeah. and just what that could look like, either practically or wrong judgment versus the... Yeah, so, judgment. yeah, really helpful. I think, um, I mean, I, I was just kicking this around as I saw the question come in. Um, to give some examples of this, I guess you do hear, and I hear this you know, reasonably frequently, as sort of looking down our noses at the Apostle Paul, thinking, well, he's a kind of man of his time. He didn't really understand kind of uh, things of this day. And so actually, you know, we need to listen to him, but, but he's one voice amongst the many. And, and, and we're tempted to sort of, uh, I hear this in the church, sort of look down our noses at Paul and actually, you know, in some respects, reject what he says and uh, move away from uh, his apostolic authority. So that's one example. Uh, I guess uh, a danger for us might be, as a church, we uh, are passionate about getting the Bible uh, to speak and to work hard at not selling our own ideas, but to actually portray what the Bible we think is saying uh, in any one service. And uh, that's a wonderful thing. It's a thing I celebrate and want to keep us doing. But there is a flip side to that, which is that you can then look down your nose at people that don't do that or get things wrong, uh, which we all do. I think, well, actually, we're better than them. We, we know better. Um, you can sometimes hear that sort of judgment. Um, so, yes, and I think with all this, Paul's saying, look, you're one, such a lousy judge, you can't see into the heart, you can't even see into your own heart, and secondly, you're not very generous. And actually, the gospel uh, means that God is far more generous than you and me can be. Uh, so leave the judgment to God. Mm -hmm. And I guess you could see how judgment and boasting can tie into one another yes. in terms of as I judge someone else and look down on them, in response to that, I could build myself up and go, yeah, and I'm, I'm sorted. I've got it, yeah, I've got it yeah. worked out here. Is it worth just chipping into that? Because there may be some confusion um, that might just be worth clarifying that when we say not judging, that doesn't mean we don't, um, we don't you know, care about truth at all. Um, so just look over the page to uh, chapter 5. You'll see, this is in two weeks' time we're going to get here, he says in verse 1, it's actually reported to you that there, are, there is sexual immorality uh, among you. And then he, he criticizes them uh, in verse 3 because they haven't passed judgment on this person. So here's the, the kind of subtlety of it. it. It doesn't mean that we suddenly sort of say anything goes. We don't really care about the gospel. We don't really care about how we live. Far from it. He says, no, actually, there's a place for calling out that. But here he's, he's tacking in that sort of attitude that puts us up on a pedestal, puts everyone else down. And, uh, yeah, so just got to hold those two things together. Yeah, 
Yeah, great. And I guess we'll unpack that a bit more over the next few weeks. As you we will, in. yeah. I, yeah. Okay. I, I'll <laughs> Sorry. unpack that a bit yes, more thank as we you. get in. Thanks, good. Yeah, look forward to that. Yeah. Um, as we get into these pretty meaty chapters. Yes, coming yes, up. come back.